Hey, everybody. It is episode 73 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is on the line, piping in virtually. Hey, Steve. Hello, Chris, and hello, podcast world. Steve and I have been spending quite a lot of time together in closed spaces over the last (laughs) several weeks. So this is going to, I think, make for interesting conversation (laughs) as we jump into this. So with this episode, episode 73, we decided to focus on speed workouts and talk a little bit about what we mean when we call speed workouts quality workouts, and then basically go through different types of speed workouts or quality workouts and explain to you where they fit, why you do them, how to think about them and and tips for doing them, as well as examples for the different types of workouts so that you can get a sense of the variation that you should be seeing in a training program that you're following, or perhaps you should be adding to the mix for you, depending on what your goals might be. So we're going to be talking about quality and speed today and breaking all of that down for you. As always, we've got some intro topics for you. The first is some fun, some fun exciting good news from the running world. In a week that had some bad news too, Steve. We got to talk about Jenny Simpson, who broke the American record for the two mile at Drake Relays, running a 916 to best Shannon Robery's previous record of 920 by four seconds. And in that race, she won by 15 seconds, finishing nearly or probably just over 100 meters ahead of her next best competitor in that race. And she made it look so easy, Steve. So easy. Absolutely dominating performance from Simpson. Clearly had more in the tank if she actually had somebody to race or somebody to pace her, but she did it all by herself, closing strongly in 63 in the last lap. What do you make of this effort from Jenny Simpson? Well, it's pretty amazing. Uh, just, I didn't get to watch the whole race. I didn't a lot of, as you said, alluded to earlier, we've been very busy over the last couple of weeks, the so last week or two, and I didn't get the chance to watch the whole video, but I just watched the last lap and a half, and I already knew she was rolling, and then the way that she rolled that last lap with nobody around her made it look like she was running a 73-second quarter, and she was running a 63-second quarter. It's like, it's unbelievable how great and strong she looked, and I'm uh, I'm it makes me think about how how well she might transition to the 5k um you know she ran a, a sub 15 minute 5k when she was in college but it was always like it was, I just wonder how how this will compare to how this will look late season for her um if she chooses to go down that strength route with a 5k but it was it was a beautiful it was a beautiful thing to behold Chris, I think that she, I read somewhere that she has won, she's raced 11 times on the Drake track and won all 11 of her races, which by itself is pretty amazing. Um, You know, Drake is sometimes overshadowed by pen relays. And now with the collegiate system all completely broken up between pen relays, Drake relays, now they've got this weird timing for the Peyton Jordan race. And then they've got all these relay meets that they've got going on collegiately. It's crazy this week in, in track and field at the collegiate level. But still, for her to win 11 times on the Drake track, that's between U.S. Championships and the Drake Relays, is pretty amazing. 
She's Iowa born, and the Iowa crowd was definitely excited for this record. It was cool to see watching that last lap and a half or so how 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 much energy she was clearly pulling from the crowd. And she talked about it in her post race interview, even though she didn't have competitors to push her or to chase around her. She said she was pushed on by the amazing energy on the track. And that's cool. Now, we have to remind people of the prediction I made, Steve, a few episodes ago that Jenny Simpson would win the 5K at the U.S. Championships. And so I was wondering if this gave you any pause in calling bullshit on that prediction. (laughs) I think I'm not going to call any bullshit on it. (laughs) Pretty much all you did was tee that up to maybe give you a stroke, but I'm going to have to (laughs) not to do that. Yeah, you were right. How about that? You were right. But we'll see. We'll, we'll see, see if she it chooses. actually plays out. But you uh, you seem even more right because why would she do this if she wasn't planning on transitioning that um, that direction? So, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. But congrats to Jenny Simpson. In a world of track and field that was marred this week by a potential doping positive from Asbel Kiprop, the, probably the, the most decorated, at least, from a global champion perspective, Myler in the world, he was potentially an EP showed an EPO positive result. We're not going to talk about that, but amidst that, at least on this episode, but amidst that news, it's nice to see somebody like Jenny Simpson, who you got to believe based on her history and the way she's approached the sport and talks about the sport that she's doing it clean. So to have a clean U S record on the books in the two mile, is a win for track and field. You know, Chris, she just ran Doha this morning and, uh, you know, they were going for the American record, which is, uh, three <clears throat> K, right? The dope. Yeah. She's running the three K. She ran the three K was against the drug cheat, Mary Slaney. Uh, you know, Mary's record is eight twenty five, And I think Jenny ran eight thirty, which is still really fast because I think the equivalent three K for her two mile is somewhere around like eight thirty five or so. Um, but I thought, I think that the race just didn't play out the way, didn't allow for a very, very fast race. So, um, I think the winner was through 829 and I think Jenny ran 830 and I think her PR is 829. So she didn't get the record, but it seems like maybe that wasn't on the cards for that day. We were hoping that that might play out, but still it takes nothing away from the new two mile record and the way that Jenny did that completely solo. Um, you know, when you get into races with, with a bunch of East Africans, all kinds of things change. So, um, but it doesn't take anything away from what she did at Drake in the two mile. Absolutely. So congrats to Jenny. Second topic for today, as we alluded to when I put Amanda on the spot in the last episode, the marathon trials for 2020 Olympics, that venue has been chosen and it's going to be in Atlanta, put on by the Atlantic Track Club in. February of 2020, just shy of the games in Tokyo later that year. So what's your reaction in hearing that Atlanta won over Chattanooga, Austin, and Orlando? Did, did they get it right? I mean, yeah, they got it right. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say whether they got it right. I'm sure all four locations would have put on <coughs> really good events. But I, I'll tell you this, if your question had been, is there any surprise, the answer, my answer would have been no. 
from the amount of people don't really in the US don't really know exactly how track clubs work because most of them are dysfunctional. <laughs> the only mm-hmm. two or three that are really, really functional are the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, and then the New York um New York NYAC, New York Athletic Club is a really good club too. And then the next one, or or maybe even equal or better, is the Atlanta Track Club. And there's a lot of money in that club. It's supported by their community. They've got an executive director. They've got um, you know, they've got they've been they've been running at high levels for a long time and they they definitely know how to monetize and fund an event like this. And so I do think for the participants, um the event will be very well put on. Um, and it will be, and and it will be done in a way that, um, highlights the needs of the athlete, unlike LA this past year. But I will warn people that it does look like this course is likely to be hilly because where they're talking about holding it is got some hills. Um, and, and probably even hillier than Austin would have been had they chosen Austin, which is a little surprising probably to most people. But, um, I think this is a good choice. I don't think that. I know Austin probably wasn't quite ready, even though they put a, a bid in. I think they're probably more lean towards what will happen in 2024. I have no idea about the other two locations, but um, the one cool thing about this, Chris, is that they're planning on, at least they say they're going to be funding both A qualifiers and B qualifiers, which um, for our listeners, that means you, get, you can get a qualifier for the Olympic trials. And there's two different categories. There's you run fast enough, you get what they call an A standard. And then if you run just under the standard that they've set for it, it's called for the marathon, they call it a B standard. Typically over the years, the A standard has been those who met the A standard were allowed, were paid for their way to get there. And the B standard people had to pay their own way. But the NIA truck club is talking about paying for everybody. But then that brings into question why even have two different levels, but USATF didn't know who they were going to select. And of course, the A and the B standard makes sense if you're going to um, only fund one of the two. So, but it is cool for the athletes. It looks, seems like I'm, I'm pretty sure Atlanta Track Club is going to do a great job for the event and definitely be catering to the athlete rather than catering um, to the USATF. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they made the best choice, to be honest. The because you've got the best funded and most experienced group running the show. And while I have no doubt that the other cities could have pulled something together, I think what you have with the Atlanta Track Club, who also puts on major events, including the largest 10K in the country, what you have in that group is a group that knows how to put on big events like this, and has $2 million of liquid assets to help fund the effort. I'm sure they'll also be working with local corporations to bring sponsorship to the table as well. You've got Coca-Cola based in Atlanta. You've got Publix, who will actually be the title sponsor for the People's Marathon, the Atlanta Marathon that will happen the next day. So I think you have a recipe for success here with both the experience of the Atlanta Track Club plus the emphasis that they've talked about, which is to put the focus back on the athlete. And we know from Los Angeles, the host for the 2016 trials and those that experienced that in the race, the, the, the women in our group who did it, 
the athletes were absolutely the last thought. I mean, it was kind of, it's kind of frankly embarrassing when you heard some of the stories of them having to basically have no food at the end of the marathon. I mean, Allison was talking about how they got to the finish and there was essentially nothing for, <laughs> for them when they finished. But, and there was a VIP tent close to the finish that Allison started wandering to, thinking that that was their spot where they could kind of refuel post-race. And somebody brushed her away and said, no, that's for VIPs only. So the VIPs were able to get supported <laughs> and have what they needed. But the athletes who were finishing on an incredibly hot day in LA got nothing. And so that, frankly, is embarrassing. I think the fact that Atlanta's paying the way of all competitors and is clearly going to make this an event that's centered around the athletes is the way it needs to be done. And so I think they chose the best spot. It will be a challenging course, but I think that'll make for interesting racing. And the Atlanta Track Club will set up a loop course that if you go and spectate, is going to be a fun show to watch, to be able to see the athletes. They're saying five or six times potentially on the course coming by one spot. So. I think it's a good choice. I'm excited. Atlanta's an underrated city. You and I will be there unless something happens to end the world. And we hope that those listening can already start planning to be there as spectators, potentially even doing the race the next day. But this one's coming on February 29th, 2020. So mark your calendars, circle them, and be in Atlanta to cheer on the best marathoners, marathoners in the country prior to Tokyo. So I'm excited. I'm excited. All right. So the last thing to talk about, at least today for the intro, we've got to talk about the Caster Semenya <clears throat> rules and situation because we've had several people kind of comment and want our perspective. But basically to give people context, the, the IAAF, this past week has introduced new rules to govern the categorization of male and female athletes, well, essentially female athletes, to determine who can compete in the female category. These rules basically state that if you're running in events from 400 meters up to 1500 meters then you have to have a certain max level or you have to be under a certain level of testosterone in order to compete as a female and so athletes like Castor Semenya the Olympic 800 meter champion the Olympic or the and the world 800 meter champion Astro, Astro, a, athletes like Castor and several others that have hyperandrogenism or elevated levels of testosterone will be forced to either not compete in those distances or take hormones to essentially regulate their level of testosterone in order to get under the thresholds now identified by the IAAF. This comes as a reaction to several years ago, basically an international arbitration course court throwing out the previous standards that were also testosterone level-based, completely throwing those out and telling the IAAF to come up with new standards. And in the meantime, between then and now, there were essentially no standards. So any athlete identifying as female could compete as a female. 
up until these new rules that just recently were released. Now, this is an extremely complicated issue, so we're going to try to focus on the facts first, and then you and I, Steve, can give our opinions. The So basically, as it stands, based on this current ruling, Castro Semenya and others that suffer from Suffer is probably not the right. Other other female athletes that have ele- not suffer, but other female athletes that 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 have elevated levels of testosterone for a variety of reasons. Typically, these athletes are called intersex athletes because they have, in varying forms, the male levels of testosterone. They're going to be forced to seek essentially treatment in order to reduce those levels of testosterone in order to compete in events from 400 to 1500 meters. Now you ask, and so a big part of the backlash over these new rules in the last week has been that they seem unfairly pointed towards one athlete, Castor Semenya being the face of this challenging issue. And because the the list of events was so narrowly defined, it seems like this is specifically geared towards kind of forcing one athlete in one event or two events to have to seek treatment in order to compete with as a female. The IAAF has said, no, we have science that says that females with these elevated levels of testosterone have more advantage in this range of events. And so they're trying to point to science in order to justify these new rules. But at the end of the day, it seems unfair. And a lot of people are saying, look, why wouldn't this advantage, this testosterone advantage, be considered like any other advantage? Usain Bolt's long legs, the height of a basketball player, the fact that some people are more naturally talented in terms of being fast than others or might have higher vo2 maxes or whatever it may be and so there's a lot of people saying look this isn't fair so steve i'll throw it to you now after that bit of background and before i get your perspective on these rules why is this issue so complicated i don't even know why it's so complicated i mean I, 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 I'll just say this. I know why it's complicated because nobody has decided on a set rule or a set standard from which to work from, right? It's all based, the IAAF says stating that they're basing this on science. When the fuck has the IAAF ever based anything on science? Those people, they base it all on a whole different number of metrics that have nothing to do with what is good for the sport, it seems like to me. It's all about protecting money, monetizing and things of that nature. But that's my little sidebar about IAAF. I think what we needed in this case is a number of different groups of people to sit down and discuss how do we handle this issue where an, where how do we manage this issue that I think everybody knows the situation in one way or another is unfair. And, but we have to decide what quote unquote is acceptable and then what quote and then who is outside of the exceptions. And again, again, Chris, we can get into all kinds of science with this and it gets really, really confusing. 
But I think anybody that watches Castro Semenya run knows that she has an advantage that is a little bit different than Usain Bolt's long legs and a little bit different than um, Ayana Amaz's uh, tininess as she runs the 10,000 meters. I mean, this is different. And it is something that over many, many, many years in the end, in the, at the, world level, we have been trying to look at that because it happened in this event before in the 1970s, where the current world record is is basically a world record based on someone who was definitely on, on, on you know, steroids, but she was also um, probably an intersex athlete as well. So I don't know, Chris, to me, I think we need to kind of set up what the rules are or what the level playing field is or how if the level playing field will never get level, at least decide on something. Because what the IAAF did is just make it even more murky, in my opinion, or more importantly, they just focused right on one athlete. But here's the thing. If Caster's already talked about moving up from the 800 to the 15 or up to the 5,000 or 10,000, where the 5,000 and 10,000 are not going to be tested, She's still going to have an advantage there. I mean, I think she's going to get her ass kicked, but she still has an advantage. She'll still have an advantage there. So I don't really get all of this hullabaloo. I just wish that they would have. I mean, I understand the hullabaloo. I just wish they would have created something that was not just ba- that was based on a, a wide variety of different issues and everybody being on the same playing field and then selecting regardless of who was currently getting a quote unquote advantage. Anyway, I probably muddied the waters even more. What do you think? Well. First of all, for those that get outraged about this, and, and on the surface it seems outrageous, so I understand the outrage. But but first of all, those that get outraged and say, "Well, you know, why is this issue any different than LeBron James being a certain height and that giving him an advantage to play basketball?" And the reason is because the IWF and society in general has at this stage in the game chosen to have two categories of athletes in track and field. You have the male category and you have the female category. So then the question becomes, how do you determine who should compete in each of those categories? And so we have to set rules for saying who can compete in the female category. And as we've learned about gender, there are there is a spectrum. It's not a black and white issue, neither from a physical standpoint or from a mental standpoint in terms of gender identity. So you've got this spectrum of gender. And in order to continue to have two categories in track and field, if you're going to have two categories, then you have to decide where to draw the line on the spectrum of gender and decide everybody up to this point can compete in the female category. Everybody after this point can compete in the male category. And so that is the fundamental question. And so what we're trying to decide is what are the rules for who can compete in the female category? And we have to keep in mind that there's a bit of history here, which is that they used to do really crazy things like genital inspections prior to competing in order to determine who had the right genital situation in order to compete in the female category. And that's obviously all types of wrong. The other thing to keep in mind is that you have this this category in science and physiology that they call intersex, where you have people that have both 
the genetic components of males and indoor females and some of the physical components of males and or females. And both of those things might be a little bit intermixed. And so you have a situation where there's a this, these, this intersex population where it becomes really complicated as to which category they should be able to compete in. But if you're going to draw a line and not just have comp- everybody compete in one category, then you have to decide what that line is. The IWF is trying to draw a line. But in this case, I think agree with people that this one seems unfair because it seems to be specifically pointed at a certain athlete or a certain narrow subset of athletes like Castor Semenya, Ninian Saba, Wambui, and the 800 in particular. And it doesn't cover all categories and levels of events, which seems like if you're going to have a rule or a set of rules to determine who can compete in the female category, those rules should should be governed should govern 100 meters all the way up to the marathon and yet the IWF does not have that so i agree with the outrage on this specific ruling i think it's too narrow and seems to be unfairly focused on one small subset of athletes or one athlete i want to see broader characteristics or a broader set of events covered. But where you draw that line is extremely complicated. I don't think there's really good answers. I'm not going to pretend to know where that line should be drawn. But if if you believe, as you're listening, that there should still be a female category in track and field, then we have to figure out how to draw that line. And so for me, I would like to see the IAAF select a council of primarily women and intersex athletes not just athletes, but women and intersect athletes, scientists, experts on this issue to have a meeting of the minds and talk about it because unfortunately, this is probably more men sitting around the room in the IWF making these decisions and that's ridiculous. So give me a council of experts from varying fields and including athletes to decide what's fair in this case in order to decide who can compete as a female across all events. And then let's see how people react to those standards. That's my take. You just said in a really, really nice way what I said, but I didn't have all the fancy words that you did. So we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's what we think. We think that there has to be some rules, but that, this is a really tricky issue to define rules and we need to get the right people to do it. And currently the IAAF likely doesn't have that happening. So we will see. You know, Chris, let me say one thing. You know, one of the things that you pointed, you, you brought up is I think critical and crucial that I think our listeners should need to be, make sure that they hear this again. And, and that's that this, the IAAF had almost no women or I don't think they had any women in terms of making this decision. And I just think, why are a bunch of men sitting around trying to decide this when we need to have women involved in that process for sure? If not, I don't know if it should be just women, but I definitely think women should be involved in that process. Um, and, and women who are in this, in this boat who are, um, and so that we can get their perspective and understand where they're coming from and what the challenges are. So, um, as you said, it's a murky, confusing issue, but there are ways to manage it and handle it and try to get the best thing we can. And then once we set it up, it'll, we should go forward with it and not change that. But to not have women involved is just absolutely asinine in my opinion. Absolutely. 
All right, so there you go. Perhaps we muddied an already muddy issue, but that's our take at this point. We'll continue to watch it and keep you guys updated as developments happen. All right, let's talk to let's go to our main topic, Steve. We we decided after discussion and actually debate from a few sides this week to talk about what we define or call quality workouts. Some people might call them speed workouts. And and so we're going to kind of walk through as a form of education and to hopefully equip you with more information about how to apply different types of workouts in your own training. We're going to walk through what are quality workouts and then basically go through different types of quality workouts to talk about what they are, how they fit, how to execute them, and some examples so that you can apply that in your own training world. We recognize that we probably got more in our outline here, Steve, to, than, than we can than we can cover Typical today. Typical running rug fashion. Typical <laughs> running rug fashion. So this is likely going to be two episodes, but we'll see where, how far we get on this one. So we're going to start with a question, and then we're going to go through different types of quality workouts. So first question, Steve, and I'll throw it to you, is simply, what is a quality workout? How would you define it? I would define a quality workout as fast running with a purpose or hard running with a purpose. Probably fast isn't quite the right term, but hard running with a purpose. And that means that you're doing something other than easy, comfortable running pace. And also that you're doing it to try to encourage a physiological adaptation or to prepare yourself for a race of any of a number of different distances. So basically, this could be anything from 100 meters um, in distance to almost, I mean, I guess I would probably put an outward limit of quality being somewhere around 26 miles, but that's really nebulous. I would just put it, it would just sort of be question mark, question mark, question mark, you know, there. But it's some it's it's definitely the main focus here is that you're running what most people would call a workout, or you're trying to elicit a certain physiological response or a certain psychological adaptation so that you're prepared to run your race of whatever distance you choose to run. How's that? Is that generic enough? It's good. I mean well, I mean I I don't think it's generic. I think it's fairly specific. Hard running with a purpose. I like hard better than fast because about hard versus easy and not defining fast, right? So hard running with the purpose. Now you mentioned two reasons to do it, physiological and, and sort of race preparation. I think within the physiological category, it's important to note that there's sort of two subcategories there at the highest level. One of those subcategories is to improve running economy or Put another way, improve running form and efficiency so that you burn less energy doing similar work. And then the other, the second physiological change that you might be trying to drive is related to fine-tuning or building your aerobic system in some way. 
And your aerobic system, just like your muscular system, has different components, different parts, which we've talked about in a prior episode. But I want to I want to be clear as we talk about this, and in, in the from an analogy standpoint, you know, I like I like to talk to people about sort of your aerobic system in the form, or use this car analogy when you're talking about the aerobic system. And there's some work that you do to build your aerobic foundation or your aerobic capacity. And that's largely what you're doing when you're running easy and you're running long and you're running consistently and you're getting more running in at easy efforts. So that that's building the size of your engine, if you will, going back to the kind of car analogy, it's like part of what we do in running, the easy days, the long runs, the consistent work, generally at easy efforts. When we're doing that, we're building the size of our engine. We're going from you know, a little lawnmower engine when we're aerobic babies, as, as we've said before, to hopefully you know, a car engine and then varying sizes of a car engine from a four-cylinder, a six-cylinder, eight-cylinder, and so forth. And so when we talk about getting faster as an athlete, a big part of that is building the size of your engine, which is all that aerobic development kind of work. The quality work, at least some parts of quality might do that, but for the most part with the quality work, what we're doing is fine-tuning the engine. And so we're taking the engine and whatever size we've been able to build it to over time and we're revving it up, we're fine-tuning it so that you get the most out of that engine, whatever size it might be. And so I think it's important to make that distinction or to talk about that analogy because I think a lot of people think that they get faster by doing fast workouts or quality workouts by running hard with a purpose. And yeah, you do at some level because you're fine-tuning your engine, but also a big part of getting faster, which we're not going to talk about today, is building the size of your engine, which we've talked about on other episodes, Miles Matter being one of the key ones. And so I just want to make that distinction that this isn't just about, or this isn't the only thing that matters when it comes to getting fast. This is just a component of it the fine-tuning part that we're going to talk about today. And there's different types of workouts that we're going to talk about. And some of those actually will play into aerobic development or aerobic capacity building. But for the most part, with these workouts, we're talking about fine-tuning. Is that a fair analogy, Steve? Yeah, I think so. Another way I like to talk about it um, is, and you alluded to this uh, quickly, but I like to tell people that the term... You gave, I, I use the term fast to start off, but I, I really, and then I adjust it to hard. The funny thing is that fast is just a, just a, like a descriptor for the end result of the thing that happened, of the race result that happened. Really, what's happening for the athlete that does this quality work is that they're able to run more easily at the paces that used to be difficult before. And so that's where the term economy comes from. And that's where the term of getting economical is that you really, you don't really get faster in the sense of more powerful or more explosive or anything else. I mean, in some cases you can, but generally that's not what we're really trying to do. We're trying to make athletes more economical and better 
able to work at higher speeds with less work. And everything that we do from a quality perspective is definitely focused on that main attribute. Yeah. Perfect. So let's drill in a little bit then. So hard effort, hard work with a purpose. And there's different types of quality workouts or speed workouts. And each of those have different purposes. So now we're going to kind of break those down and talk a little bit about how those fit into a program and what they're doing for you and how to think about or execute them with some examples. So we're going to start and there's basically through this discussion, whether it's over one or two episodes, there's basically what we're going to go through four categories of quality workouts. And we're going to, and, and really Steve, I mean, no matter how many categories you talk about, it's going to still be a little bit of an oversimplification. So we want to recognize that there's nothing magical necessarily about the categories that we're going to talk about. You could split this up a little bit differently if you decided to. But for the most part, we're going to talk about four categories of quality workouts that we put into play in our programming and then what the purpose is for each of those and how to execute them and so forth. The first category or macro category is going to be running economy workouts. Kind of this idea of making yourself more efficient and improving your form and your ability to to run fast with less and less energy. So economy workouts, one of the things you can do for economy workouts as we drill into different types of economy workouts is strides. So let's talk about strides and how those work by first defining what is a stride to give people context? So what's a stride, Steve? A stride is a sub-maximal sprint. Um, and so I'll refine that a little bit. Um, it's running at, optimally, it's running about 90 95% of your absolute maximum sprint speed. Now, most runners will not, especially our marathoners um, and any ultra marathoner listening to us, it will be very hard for them to get to 90 to 95% of their maximum sprint speed without feeling like the entire, their legs are going to fall off of them. But, the, but it, conceptually, that's what the stride is. It is trying to run very closely to all out without being all out in order to maximize the full length of stride, the full stride length, the full propulsion or push-off phase that happens in running, and the full um, ground contact and recycle phase that happens in the running form. And so strides are designed primarily to allow runners to get much faster um, with very little with very little distress in terms of lactic lactic accumulation or tightness. And they're usually designed um, primarily done after easy run days. Um, and so that they're really just tapping at the system's limits 
um, without going over the limits or even to the limits, but getting just close to it so that you can maximize how much output, push off, uh, stride length, and comfort at that at that really fast pace that you can. Um, Chris, we've talked about this a couple of times, I believe, on this podcast. You and I are both incredible fans of strides, and it's one of if we had to choose one or two or three workouts that we would ask people to do in their running, I certainly would put strides as being very, very important in the, the, the full mix of things that people are doing, and especially for our marathoners and half marathoners. Yes. And the thing about strides, because you're getting to and holding that high-end sort of sprint speed in a really controlled way for a short period of time. What you're doing as a part of this is improving your economy because what happens when you run faster is your body tends to move into a more efficient space. You kind of force yourself without having to think about it into a more efficient space for you. And to hold that for just a little bit of time at those speeds of 90%-ish of full max sprint speed, by holding that for just a little bit of time, it sort of, in a kind of small doses, inoculates your system to becoming more efficient, smoother, having better form, that will then translate to your other running without you having to think about it. And so strides are something for me that I tell my athletes they should be doing quite nearly year round. You know, it's something you can do almost every week of the year if you're consistently running and training for races, regardless of where you are in a macro cycle, regardless of where you are in the type of race you're training for, regardless of whether you're recovering from a race and maybe taking a little bit of downtime. Strides have a place in pretty much every week of the year because it's allowing you to, in a short, controlled sprint, essentially improve your efficiency year-round. So to give people context, because I think strides are something that you know aren't necessarily showing up on a schedule that you print off, print off on the internet, they're you know, showing it's, it's, up on a rogue on a rogue schedule. Are, they're probably. on a rogue schedule for sure, but uh, you know, like a generic <laughs> schedule, you don't see it a lot, and so people may not have context of that, you know, compared to something like you know running eight hundred meter repeats. So, just describe for them, Steve, what might a stride workout look like? Cool. Well, number one, this is one I wouldn't necessarily call a workout, and I think you'd agree. But what it is is, yep. um, and you can make it into a workout, but I think we'll be talking about that in the next discussion. But um, basically what a stride is, the way that you want to, you want to implement a stride, and I'm going to kind of, first off, I'm going to talk about, um, and we'll try to use this, uh, this process when we talk through each of these quality workout types. Um, first, I'm going to talk about the, uh, what the workout would look like or what the session would look like. Number two, I'm going to talk about where you might do it, what kind of facility, what kind of, where, where, what kind of uh, course, what kind of other thing you might use. Number three, I'll talk about um, what you want to be, where your body positioning wants to be or how you want to be approaching it from a physiological standpoint. And finally, Chris, we'll talk maybe a little bit about why somebody 
would benefit from it. Is that fair? Yep. Cool. So first off, what a workout would look like, and we and I right now I'm putting quotation marks or air quotes around the term workout because it wouldn't match most people's definition of a workout. But a stride session would usually be tacked on to the end of an easy run. Um, my suggestion, and not everyone agrees with me on this, Chris, and I, and I don't even know if you do necessarily, but my suggestion is to make sure this is done on an easy run day. I do not like to see people doing strides at the end of long runs or even medium long runs. Though I know, Chris, sometimes you do suggest media, them at medium long runs, and I'll let you talk about that in a second. But for yeah. me, it's, 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 it's exclusively on easy run days. And sometimes I'll even do it in the middle of an easy run where I'll ask an athlete to go to a track or, or to stop in the middle of a run when they find some grass fields or if they find um, a, a section of road that no one else is on, that they've got some room. Um, and it would look like, in my case, usually I almost always recommend four to six strides. Um, and a stride, in my opinion, is usually what I would consider about 50 to 60, maybe 75 meters long. Um, if you're on a track, that's pretty easy to see because your straightaways are about 90 meters long. Um, sometimes, depending on the kind of track you have, you'll think they're 100, but they're usually not. Um, so it's basically nearly the amount of length of a, of a, of a straightaway on a track. Um, if you're not on a track, another way to look at this is it's usually about 10 to 12, maybe 15 seconds long. Um, anything that goes beyond 20 seconds is no longer a stride, in my opinion. It moves into a different category of quality session. One of the things that's really important with these qual this quality session and the way that you, you line up these four to six reps of, of a stride that you'll do is that you really want to do this stride with what we call a walk back. And that means that you're going to do the stride. And when you finish the stride, you're going to turn around and walk back to the location that you started it. Why is that? Because we are not trying to generate lactic acid development here. We're not trying to get you to get fit. We're trying to get you to open up and work just on the neuromuscular recruitment that sprinting or close to all out sprinting is. And so you're looking for, you know, 50, 60, 70 meters strides or 10, 12, 15 second long strides going at what I would call. Initially, I would probably recommend people start at about 70% effort, or if you want to be really, really careful, you can start out at your 5K pace, and then you want to move towards varying more difficult degrees of, of effort level to go to 85% of your, of your maximum sprint speed, and then eventually over the course of a number of weeks, maybe even two months, trying to work to the point where you can run near 80, I mean, near 90 to 100% of your all-out pace of what it would be a all-out sprint for you. One other thing I want to talk about here, Chris, you want you can do these on any surface. Um, different times of the year, different athlete groups that I work with, um, I'll do them on a track or I'll do them on the road or I'll do them on the grass. Sometimes I've done them when I coached collegiate athletes or if I find a place where people can do them without their shoes on. Sometimes I'll recommend in a place that's safe to do that, we'll run on grass or a, or an infield of a football state field where they run with barefooted, but it doesn't. All those things are sort of permutations on this on this basic simple idea of running near all out, but not all out, and um, keeping it short and making sure that you get a full recovery after every one of those strides. 
So in the stride itself, what does that look like? I mean, typically what I recommend is that if they've gotten there straight away, whether it be on a track or I'll do them in front of my house, people do them in front of Rogue on the road. I typically recommend that they mentally divide that straight away into thirds where you're building your speed from zero to 85, 90% for a third. You're holding that speed for a third of the straightaway. And then you're kind of letting off the gas without braking, just extending to flow, you know, all the way through, through the end of the straightaway, you know, keeping your form and, and staying smooth all the way, but kind of letting off the gas and letting your speed go back down to zero by the end of the straightaway. And then you walk back to the start, as you said, for full recovery and repeat that. One thing that I find in doing these, especially when you start doing them for the first time, is that your, 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 your middle third, your kind of sprint section, will increase in pace as you warm into the strides, maybe from stride one to stride four or from one to six. You're going to find that that middle section gets faster as you go because your body's kind of warming into the stride, getting a little smoother. In some cases, I also find that my strides might extend a little bit if I have the flexibility to do so as I go because I'm able to hold that middle section a little bit longer as I warm up without obviously getting crazy. I'm talking about extending by five meters, 10 meters max. And so that's how I tell people to execute it. As you do that, what you also want to do, and you kind of alluded to this, Steve, is think about your form, not in any super rigid or specific sort of way, but more that you want to focus on being smooth, relaxed, and moving fluidly. Uh, and I will tell my runners to think about really, especially initially, exaggerating, exaggerating the, their arm and leg movements, their knee lift and their arm swing in order to kind of find an efficient, smooth and relaxed place. And these strides should not be stressful at any point. You're only holding that fast speed for maybe 30 meters, maybe less, 20, 30 meters for several seconds in order to get this inoculation. We talked about this brief inoculation into more efficient running. And so you don't have to overdo it. And you shouldn't feel like, as you said, you shouldn't feel like you're building up any waste or working too hard at any point. If you do, you're probably doing something wrong, but you're, so you're just holding that sprint for a very short, very short window. And then walking back to the start. And as you do, you know, start with four, build to six, you know, over three to four weeks. And then do those consistently throughout any training cycle. Now, Steve. Yeah, go ahead. In some cases, we also do hill strides. Yeah. So, you know, there's strides on flat ground, which we just described. How might you change this? And what might the benefits be? If you move the stride to a hill. Okay. I'm going to, all right, I'll, I'll say that. And then I want to go back and make some refinements on based on what you said, but 
hill okay. strides, um, they're a little bit different. And I, I really do think it's really important for folks who are considering doing hill strides. Um, it's really crucial and important that you find an appropriately uh, pitched hill. So you want something that has um, enough upward tilt or enough enough grade that you have to work differently than you would work on a normal stride. So you have to recruit your muscle groups a little bit differently to run up it. But not so steep that you feel like you're really dying at the end. And um, what I usually suggest is go, it's way better to have a less, less steep hill when you get started with these hill strides than it is to have a too steep hill because you can start to get into it a little bit more. I've had people who have done hill strides on their own without me knowing where they were doing it and where they've injured themselves or, or got themselves in a place where they couldn't do quality workouts very easily for the next couple of days because they were really stiff or sore. So, but the main thing is just to pick a, a hill that's pretty gradual, but just enough work that you feel like it's different. You're doing different work than you would do on a flat stride because otherwise we would just do a flat stride. So the key things with the hill stride that you want to be thinking about, again, it should not be too long. Again, you should build into it, as you discussed, Chris, maybe 30 and 30 and 30 meters or, you know, five seconds, five seconds, five seconds, as the case may be. But on hill strides, a couple of things you want to be paying attention to that are a little bit different. Number one, your arm movement is really crucial. You want to be put what I call pushing your elbow, thrusting your elbow back as far as you can. So many people, when they run uphill, they just push, they just use their arms basically from their midpoint or from their chest forward. And they just lift them up like they were doing a uppercut as a, as a, as a boxer would. But what you're really trying to do is shoot that elbow back, throw that elbow back and push that elbow back as far as you can. And that will help you get the kind of movement necessary to go up the hill. Um, very important, that arm placement. Number two, as you start to push off on an uphill, you're going to notice you have to do a whole lot more work than you did on a flat stride. I mean, that's elementary, right? But when you do that, you really want to be concentrating on what I call pushing out the back. And Chris, when you described your stride, you discussed lifting your knees up a little bit and opening your arms up a little bit more. That's not optimal on a hill stride. What's more optimal on a hill stride is throwing your elbow back and pushing off the ground as with as much power and as much effort as you can. Those two key links are those two, what I would call cues are cues that are really important to doing a hill stride appropriately. Again, you don't want to make this so steep that by the time you get to the hill, the top of the hill, you're completely worn out. However, when you get to the top of the hill, you should be breathing heavily because it won't be easy. <laughs> so those are the two key things that I suggest with hill strides that are so crucial and critical to doing them appropriately is getting your mechanics right. Now, if I can, I'd like to go back, Chris, real quickly to this yep. one thing on the strides. Number one, I realized when you discussed originally, when you said you broke it up into thirds, Chris, that strides can actually be broken into two different categories. Um, but mostly what all distance runners do are what you are what we call buildups, which is what you described, which is getting a little faster and a little getting a little faster and a little faster and then easing off as you finish up. And so most strides are a buildup. And just anybody who's listening to us who's really technical, they might have thought, well, what's the difference? Well, they're really no difference, but you might describe them differently. Um, number two, when I talk about form with 
strides. The key thing I always tell people is get an idea in your head of the most beautiful mechanics you've ever seen in a video of any runner you've ever seen. If in lack of that, in lieu of that, stand and watch some of your teammates or some other people who might be doing strides with you and pick out the sexiest stride form that you could possibly see right there, the most beautiful form you can see and emulate that. That's what I like to tell people. Try to do the most beautiful mechanics you can possibly think of. And as you do strides over a course of three weeks, six weeks, six months, a year, you'll get better and better at highlighting and noticing beautiful mechanics in running form. And you'll be able to start to emulate or, or implement some of that yourself. Now, it's crucial that you do your own form and not use somebody else's, but we're optimizing and really looking for the most beautiful form we can possibly find. And one last point, Chris, what does the key things when you're doing a stride that we're looking for? Relaxed face, relaxed neck, relaxed shoulders. If you've ever watched a 100-meter sprint race, and they put it in slow motion, and you see those runners, those sprinters' faces go wobbly, blah, 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 up and down and up and down. When you see it in slow motion, you should be thinking about your face and your neck and your shoulders being that loose and that relaxed so that all the tension that's happening in your body is happening from the push-off and the pull-through of your stride, from the elbow pushback to the follow-through of your arm swing on the stride and not on tightening up and trying to run faster. Okay? Yeah. So one distinction I want to make too in terms of where the flat sort of strides fits versus hill strides. You know, for us flat strides can fit year round and I agree with you, you know, after any easy run I'm okay with my runners doing it after a medium long run, but my my runners are doing different, slightly less distance on their medium long runs than perhaps some of the more advanced That's marathoners true. you're coaching. And so yeah, I'm okay. So I'm okay with strides on any easy day, including a medium long easy day, as long as they're doing them consistently. So I really just encourage them to fit it in where it where it works for them outside of long run days and the quality workout day where they're spending time with me. In terms of hill strides, though, that's not a year-round affair. So where do hill strides fit into someone's planning? Those are... Um, I use them in a couple of different ways. I almost always do hill strides at the very beginning of phases, um, especially, or at the very beginning of, of, of programs. Um, you know, so many programs that we see, Chris, have what we call a real strict periodized um, schedule for their hill phases. And we really don't do that as much at Rogue as some other groups. We do bunch in our long run, hilly runs in one spot. And we also do bunch in some quality uh, hill workouts in spots. But we're not as strict as many other programs are about doing a hill phase specifically. And so frequently what I do to sort of make sure that my athletes are ready for some hills later on in the cycle is to do hill strides early on in my plan or in my program. Um, as we always say, Chris, hills are speed work in disguise and, and, and hill strides are also a much, more, uh, a much more aggressive speed work session in disguise. 
And so I like to use it early on to help make sure my my athletes are getting good biomechanics on a hill. I frequently don't get to see them um, on long sections of hills when we do hill work. Um, and so it's really a good spot for me to make some adjustments to their form. But it's also more importantly, sort of setting up the neuromuscular recruitment cycles and getting those tendon ligaments and muscles ready for some later aggressive or long hills or hills in the middle of long runs to be sure that those athletes are getting a good return and that, and that they're not going to be stressed out too much when we do hit later hill work. Um, but I've also sprinkled hill strides in latent cycles, but I normally do that, Chris, with a 5K, 10K phases, maybe in a half marathon phase. You know, as our programming, we really, with our marathoners, we're really focused on marathon race specific work late in cycles and you don't want to be doing hill strides late in your marathon specific cycle because the chance of likelihood of injury is just really too great because we've sort of limited range of motion and we've gotten into a different mode of of doing things so you know i do think hill strides are something that you can do occasionally year round but they should be much more done at the early part of any session or any season um, or late if you're doing a real specific 5K, 10K phase, or you're getting ready for a hilly course or something of that nature. What would you add there, Chris? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's all right. I mean, to me, this is stuff done early in any cycle. The, hills, the hill work done early in any cycle to basically prepare the body for work to be done later. And so it, it comes in, in very kind of narrow ranges where you might do three to four hill stride sessions at the beginning of a longer macro cycle in order to prime yourself for later. And you probably wouldn't do flat strides and hill strides in the same week. You know, those might be alternated in some way. So the other thing I wanted to point out is that some programming out there might have really generic or basic base building phases where there's only easy running in order to build aerobic capacity and prepare you for the work to be done later. But what we've learned in our own experience, we've learned from math, from other coaches, Greg McMillan, Pete Ray being another example who came on our podcast, is that the the strides are something at a minimum you want to build into a base phase, whether they're hill strides or flat strides, so that you keep the lights on a little bit in terms of that sort of raw speed, so that when you do transition from a base phase into the the next phases of your program, you're ready to do the work to come. Otherwise, we've found that it can be too abrupt to go from a pure easy running base phase into more of a strength or hill phase after that. Absolutely, Chris. It took me a couple of years working with post-collegiate athletes and with my UT athletes the years I was there as I got back into coaching 800-meter specific stuff. And um, it, it, the, especially for those folks who are getting ready for short-distance events, you, you have got to have these strides placed in your cycle year-round or you're going to really come into some difficult moments as you transition into faster speed work. So, um, and, and for our marathoners, half marathoners, 
for a very different reason, strides are just as essential because they're not usually doing enough stuff that's in that 3K, 1500 meter um, economy zone because of the risk of injury. And so the way that we are able to make sure that they keep tapping and touching on that economy and that speed work, and speed work is, is just as important for a marathoner as it is for a, for a sprinter. Um, it's, it, this is the way that we do it. And so it's really important to be sure that that's happening consistently throughout the cycle. So before we go to the next category, I did want to give people within this economy bucket some other examples of workouts you know, that incorporate strides essentially, but other ways to incorporate strides from a workout standpoint. And so there's other ways that we bring this kind of work to bear in a program. One of those ways, one example would be a straights and curves workout where and some people may be familiar with this, where you, you could do this type of work on a track and you're doing what we describe as a straights and curve workout where you're doing something like, for example, two times six laps with extended recovery between those sets of six while you're running a stride on the straightaway, running super easy on the curve, striding the next straightaway, and then running super easy on the curve again in order to kind of use a, use a track as a as a rotating sort of circle of of strides alternating between easy and faster on those straights and curves so that's one example now straights and curves can also have other purposes so i don't want to necessarily say that's only used for economy but that's a workout that we'll do where we'll do two times six laps of straights and curves in alternating easy and hard with three to four minutes, three to five minutes in between those sets for full recovery and then repeat. Now, straights and curves can also be used for recovery purposes. It can be used for other purposes as well, but that's an example of a way to use it for kind of economy building purposes. What are other examples of economy building workouts? Well, I will. I, I assume we'll go into 3K like maybe 1500 3k separately but um or but basically one thing i love to do chris is as you know and i and i sprinkle it in at varying times and um kind of surprises my athletes sometimes but i love a workout that i call pickups that happen in the middle of easy runs um so frequently that i found especially with my advanced level training groups that if i if they're out on an easy run together they have a tendency to start getting the work getting that pace cranking faster and faster and faster to the point where eventually it turns into a tempo run or worse a race and so sometimes i'll put in pickups and i initially kind of came up with them first because i wanted to slow my athletes down and give them some kind of work to do in the long run so they wouldn't turn the whole thing into a a different kind of workout than i had intended but but pickups are really a great way of doing this kind of stride now it doesn't fit the strict stride category because you don't get up to that 90% effort. My, my pickups usually, they'll either be 30 seconds long, 60 seconds long, or 90 seconds long. Um, 
And they are designed basically, and, and I'll have people do pickups in the middle of an easy run, typically an easy run that's at least somewhere in the eight, you know, six to eight to 10 mile range. And I'll do two or three or occasionally four of these pickups. And the pickups basically look like this. You make sure that you announce, if you're running with, with other people, make sure you announce to everybody that you're doing one because they'll all think that you're suddenly trying to sprint away from them and they'll be shocked at what's going on. But basically, after you've gotten completely warm, maybe 10, 20 minutes into, a, into an easy run, you just start to do a gradual pickup where you slowly but surely get a little quicker and a little quicker, maybe starting at half marathon pace and run that, I mean, marathonish pace and run that for maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And then you roll down towards half marathon pace and you hold that for 15, maybe 20 seconds. Then down towards 10K pace, maybe for in, you're just slowly but surely, gradually building up, building up, picking the pace up, picking the pace up until you reach the, the amount of time that that pickup was designed for. You should never be going faster than about 5K pace. Um, but this workout isn't designed to get any physiological adaptation, Chris. It's designed to help create economy and to open up in the middle of your run. And it also has this great unintended consequence of making everybody slow down for the rest of the run because they know they've got a couple of other build pickups that are happening up later on in the run. So I love to do pickups um, on easy days. And I, if I'm doing strides at the end of a run, I do not do, I do, not do pickups in them. But if I'm not, if I'm doing um, no strides at the end of the run, every once in a while or, or sometimes even in little phases, I'll start doing pickups in the middle of my runs to make sure that that people are still recruiting a wide variety of different foreign, a wide variety of different speed mechanisms to get turned over within the context of that easy run. So that's another example of sort of economy work, strict economy work, Chris, that we do, that I we do in our programs at Rogue. Can you think of some others? Well, yes. I mean, there's there's other ways to do it. You know, one one workout that we do kind of occasionally going back to the track is in and out 200s where you might be sort of like an extended stride where you might be doing 200 a 200 on the track at you know a fast pace perhaps building over the course of that 200 finishing really strongly then a super easy 200 and then another 200 we're kind of repeating that through a series of laps similar to straights and curves, but instead of doing, you know, kind of dividing the track in fours or dividing the track in halves, there's also, I'll do a, a workout during a lot of my base building or speed development building early in cycles. I'll do a workout. And I like to do this, particularly on the grass where you're doing 300 meter builds. And so you think of it, it's like a stride, but a really long stride where you might be building your speed over the course of 300 meters, but switching gears every 100 meters. So you might start out at, say, 65% effort in the first 100, go to 75% effort in the second 100, and then 85 to 90% effort in the final 100 with a full easy jog recovery back to the start of that 300 and then we repeat. Those are some other examples that also start to extend the concept of a stride, but are really trying to accomplish the same thing, which is to improve economy and improve neuromuscular response while still allowing full recovery so that you're not risking injury. 
Okay. Anything else we want to talk about here, Steve, before we go to the next category? Because we just spent 40 minutes talking about running and comedy. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten all the way through it. Yeah, I think this might be four right. episodes, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, one, one slight sure. adjustment. I just want to make sure in my parlance, I wouldn't use that term in and out on those 200s that you described. And I'm just getting semantics here. So please, just for anybody that's listening, an in and out in my, what I would do is a little bit different. I would use a different term. I would have said 200 with a 200 very easy jog because the in and out, a lot of times when I do in and out, the out is actually timed and is a part of the whole program. But some of that, Chris, is just That's those fair. subtle nuances and verbiage that might make a workout different. So um, that was just an adjustment. But basically, Chris, what we're talking about here is stuff that most people would not have considered really a workout. They would consider a really easy workout, right? Something that was like, wow, what, what, what was that even on tap for? I did not get overly taxed or overly worked. And the reason is, is because we're trying to re- neuromuscularly recruit the kind of tendons and ligaments and muscle power and output that um, while get it, while that are going to simulate what, what real sprinting is doing and what very hard 800-meter running or mile running or even two-mile running, all the way up to 5K running, what, what happens in that? But we're not trying to gain real specific aerobic or anaerobic fitness. What we're trying to do is just make sure that all the lights are turned on, as you used earlier, Chris, and that parlance is so great for this turning the lights on, making sure we're running with beautiful mechanics and economy, and we're not stressing trying to get some kind of end result from our time with what we're doing. Time is really of no consequence except as an indicator of how much time we've been spending on our feet doing that particular speed. So that's those are the things I would consider really true economy work. Now, what we're probably going to talk about next is stuff that um, very many marathoners don't do at all, and we do very little of this, but we're about to start doing in one of our newest programs, our speed development phase, where we work a lot on the kinds of things that really build true VO2, um, and those are the kinds of things that happen between um, when we do things that are like at 800-meter pace all the way to 3K to 5K pace. And that's another form of economy, Chris, and we probably won't spend a lot of time talking about this, Primarily because we don't do it very often, do we? We almost never do it. Right. Well, and right, and you, and that point also kind of brings up this greater point that you know these categories are are a little bit arbitrary because they're also fluid. In that, you know, you're you're building economy when you're working on VO two max. You're also building economy when you're working on threshold. Aerobic threshold work. <laughs> you're, you're building economy when you're doing race specific pacing and that kind of work. So, so in a lot of ways, this economy stuff fits into other formats as well. But the stuff we just described, strides primarily, and these other examples, is where you're really specifically honing in on just economy, or at least trying to. Yes, exactly. So, so let's go to the next kind of big category that we're going to talk about, which is what you just mentioned, the VO2 max work, which is when you think about speed, it's the faster end of the speed spectrum, at least when we're talking about the distance running world. So basically, as you said, 800 meters to kind of 3K, 5K level of work. So before we dive into what that 
means and or what that looks like let's talk about what it means so when we and i know we've talked about this a long time ago on this on this show but when we talk about working vo2 max in layman's terms what are we talking about basically what we're doing is ensuring that we have the maximum amount or the most which is where the max comes from chris the, the mat, get the most amount of oxygen to our working muscles so we can use them when we're running fast, all right? And it's important too, VO2 max, and I think the way why that parlance has come into, into play where people in their own mind is they hear the term max, which is about the maximum amount of oxygen that you can get to your working muscles. But nine times out of 10, this VO2 max work is usually pretty intense and it's maximal in terms of the effort that you're putting in when you do it. Of course, that can always be modulated a little bit by the amount of recovery that you offer for people in this work in terms of how long they go for whatever speed they're doing. But it's mostly max stuff. You're working hard. Um, And the more that you do this kind of work, the more you stress the VO2 max system the better you're better able you are to get those to get that those that oxygen into those muscles so they can use it while you're running fast um and usually when people start to feel that feeling of tying up or getting rigor mortis what's happening there is that there's there's not enough oxygen oxygen to get to those working muscles and so the muscles start to produce another form of energy called lac- lactic lactate, and then the body uses that lactate for a while, but it can't use all of it, and then it pours into your system, and then you get booty lock. <laughs> so that's the, I guess that's the like least technical way of describing it, um, but it's basically maximal efforts. Um, trying to get the most amount of your body to get really good at taking the most amount of oxygen and you being able to use it with your body or use it with your muscles. That's the, the basic way to describe it. How, how, how was that? We didn't practice this. I just came up. I just did that yeah. on the fly. That's good. I mean, it's good. And I think another way to say it, you know, at least for us distance runners, because this would be different if you were talking about a sprinter or something, but at least for us distance runners, this is working on speed. Yep. You know, I'm not talking raw speed, but I'm talking about your ability to run fast over very short, short distances, at least short for us in the distance runner world. So, you know, 800 meters up to 5K. It's your ability to run those distances and paces faster than you could yesterday and more efficiently than you could yesterday without tying up, locking up, vomiting throwing up on the track, whatever it may be. Right. So, you know, so this is the stuff for us distance runners, us, us half marathoners or marathoners, even those that do the 10 K that really scares the crap out of us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because this is like suffer fest kind of stuff. This is my favorite so, kind of work to implement on my athletes though. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And for you, Steve, this work fits, I mean, so let me just ask you, where does it fit into 
a cycle for a, and, and we'll just use the distance example, kind of the longer distance example for a half marathon or a marathoner. Where does VO2 max work fit? Everywhere. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> just teed it up for yeah. you. This is, I, you know, you, Chris, we've been doing this. We're getting ready to kick off this group up in Dallas. And we, one of the reasons why we're having this discussion in the first place is because they were confused by the word, by the term quality. Um, and uh, they're also very confused by this idea that I call everything all the time, which means that we do a little bit of all these energy systems or all these types of quality workouts all at the same time. And the reason I do that is because most of our marathon or half marathoners, they just didn't do very much of this work when they were in the, over their lives, if any of it. And those who maybe did some high school or junior high track and field, um, they certainly have gotten away from it in a long time, or they've got so much fear about the kind of work that this is that they don't want to see it ever. Um, and so I, I, it is so crucial and important to the actual creating of true athletes, running machines, great, great running machines, that I do VO2 max work all the time. Now, Chris, I do refrain from doing faster than doing 3,000 meter pace or faster. Um, I don't do that with my half marathoners or marathoners very much, or if I do it, I do it in a very, very specific phase where I'm keeping my eye on them and making sure that they're very careful with it. For me, VO2 max fought primarily with my marathoner and half marathoner group. It sits in this 5k to 10k pace range. Um, there are people out there, the true scientists out there that will argue that maybe 10k pace is not really VO2. But it's really hard to, even the great scientists out there don't really know exactly what pace per mile or, you know, category. I mean, that sort of, that sort of what you run for your five, your 10K pace is. Nobody really knows exactly where this sort of inflection point is with VO2 max. It's a little closer with VO2 max than it is with threshold work, as we'll talk about next time, Chris. But with this VO2 max work, it really is, you know, eight, you're basically an 800 meter that what you would run for maximum an 800 meter pace to what you would run maximum for 10k and that range and um i do it all the time because it really makes my athletes really really good runners over the long haul because they haven't worked on it before and because it's such a great return on investment for work so yeah chris a lot of times you'll see me on a drop down week throwing some 5k pace work in there i give people usually some recovery um, but I, sometimes I've even done, you know, with the, uh, Aussie 5k or with the, uh, Monogetti 5k, Monogetti workout that we do, Chris, where we're really getting after it and then getting short recovery. But I love to do VO2 max work, especially on drop weeks for marathoners year round, because we're spending so much time working on slower, more, um, more aerobically dense work that this anaerobic work gets short shrift in so many programs. And it's really been a big differentiator between rogue programming and most other programming out there. And so to kind of rephrase and translate a little bit. So basically <laughs> for us, you know, we, we periodize our training as Lydia sort of taught the world to do. But this kind of work, this kind of pure speed work we find helpful little doses throughout an entire training cycle from base phase all the way to a race specific or peaking phase we do a little bit of it 
in every phase of our training in order to, just like the economy work, keep the lights on and keep that sort of pure speed at play. It also has a nice ability to make your race pace feel much more comfortable and easy and easier. And so what I always tell people is, look, the faster you can run a 5K, the faster you can run a marathon. Absolutely. That's that's the way it works. The faster you can run a mile, the faster you can run a half marathon. And so if you're improving your ability to run fast over shorter periods of time, it's only going to help your ability to run faster at the longer distances. And that's why this stuff is important. Now, the reason we can do economy work in some form every week of the year, and you might only do this VO2 max work one workout a month, is because this stuff can be much more taxing on the system and promote or risk more injury because the because of the you know the the intensity of some of these types of workouts. So we're sprinkling it in. It's like you know the the bracks the 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 black or colored sprinkles, the chocolate or colored sprinkles on top of you know an ice cream or a cake or something. It's just a little bit here and there in order to prepare you to be more efficient and fast and comfortable when you move up to your race specific work. Now, this typically comes in the form of intervals. And those intervals can be distance intervals or they could be time intervals. If we're talking about time intervals, that would be more like what you might describe as a fartlek workout or speed play as the the Swiss coined that term, but but really intervals of time where you're running at these paces with typically longer recovery than you might have in a threshold or endurance type workout. So let's give some examples, Steve, for context, and then we can talk more specifically about how it all fits together. Sure. Okay. So give it give us give us a couple. So I'll do, um, I'll give you a 5K workout, and then I'll give you guys um, a 10K workout, and then I'll give you guys um, a fart lick workout, all right? And anybody that's run with me will know these as bread and butter, okay? And I'm just using these, I believe me, I can, I can make it a lot more complex than this, but I'm making it as easy as I can just so people can get some ideas. So one workout, one that we just did this last week with all my athletes, I frequently do this, it's, let's say, 12 repetitions are 12 times 200 meters which is half a lap on the track at 5k pace or 5k pace effort depending sometimes i'll do effort because we're early in a season or at the end of a season and we're not so time-based but 5k pace with a 200 meter or equal recovery so this workout is an absolute bread and butter 5k workout you cover a little bit less than 5,000 meters of, you don't do 5,000 meters of, of you do 5,000 meters of total work, you do three miles of total work, but the recovery is half of that time. And so what this does is really safely and, and, and easily stress this VO2 system and the tendons and ligaments and muscles that have to run at those paces while offering a whole lot of a really substantial or significant amount of recovery to be ready for the next one. And 200 meters is a really short period of time to run your 5K pace. And so this is a really nice 
easily implemented VO2 max workout that's really on the side of um, what I would call quote unquote easy. Now, for folks who are just beginning, this may seem really hard, but anybody that's been doing some kind of work at this pace is it's pretty easy workout. So those five, you'd run 200 meters or half a lap at your 5K pace. And then you run the next 200 meters at a really easy recovery. And you don't time that. You just run as easy as you need to be able to be ready for the next repetition. And then you just keep repeating that until you've run three miles on the track or 12 laps on the track. Um, For most people, that 200-meter recovery will sit somewhere in the minute, um, maybe in some cases minute and a half, which would be like maybe eight minutes to nine minute per mile pace. And so obviously for somebody who's running pretty fast for their 5K, that, that's if somebody was running um, maybe 35 seconds for their 200 meters, or that would be a very fast 5K runner, or 90, not, or 45 seconds per mile for a six minute per mile pace for their 5K, um, they would be running more like, you know, a minute to a minute and a half for that, a, mi- a minute and a half for that 200 meters, even up to, to, up to, for some folks, maybe even slower. But the key there is you're not really paying attention to how fast you're running that recovery to. You're just making sure you're recovered for the next set. So that's one pretty easy example of a 5K workout. Um, my next example is one that I use at the very end of every one of my marathon training cycles. It's a 10K ladder. I learned this workout from the great Stan Huntsman who coached me at the University of Texas and was a great coach for many All-Americans. He coached Patrick Sang, who some people may know as Ilya Kipchoge's coach. I have looked at much of Ilya Kipchoge's training, and I'm pretty sure I see shades of Stan Huntsman in much of the work that Ilya, that Kipchoge does, even though he's marathon-centric. So um, th- this, is, this, this workout is a bastardization or a change-up of a, what we call the Texas 10K or the classic 10K workout. Um, it basically is almost 10,000 meters worth of quality work, and it's all done on the track. The version that I do with my marathoners is a little shorter. I don't do as many 400-meter um, reps, but this workout is basically this. You run four sets. You run four repetitions of 400 meters um, with 100-meter jog. Then you run two 800-meter reps with a 200-meter jog between them, and then a 1,600-meter rep with a 400-meter jog, and then you come back down by doing two 800 meters again with a 200-meter jog, and finally you finish with four 400 meters with a 100-meter jog. Every single one of those sessions, every single one of those of those hard sections is done at your 10K pace. And the recoveries are modulating or changing in distance because the distance of, that you're holding in that 10K interval is changing. Um, this workout is, uh, could be made to be a true 10K, 10K workout if you did eight 400 meters on the front instead of the four or eight and 800 meet, eight 400 meter reps on the back end. So it would look like eight, two, eight. Fours, two eights, one sixteen, two eights, eight fours. But for my marathoners, uh, ten days out, I like to give them this workout to make sure that they still stay primed and ready, that they're ready to suffer and know the kind of hurt that it takes to be ready for their marathon as they're going into their taper. But it's also an incredibly good VO two max workout that people can do. Um, and then finally, I'll explain. Um, the classic three, two, one fartlek that so many people use, and I think this is Chris. You've heard me say this 
This is damn near a perfect workout. It's just phenomenal. Um, you can, and you do three, it's a, you do a nice warm up and you either do two sets or three sets. The real tough one is doing three sets. You do three sets of three minutes at your 10K pace effort with a three minute recovery, two minutes at your 5K pace with two minute recovery, and then one minute fast with a one minute recovery. And then you go right back into that three minutes at your 10K pace and you repeat it. So it's three minutes, two minutes, one minute with equal recovery. And you're going 10K pace, 5K pace, faster than 5K pace. Um, and you repeat that two times if you're taking it pretty easy or three times if you want to make a really tough workout. Um, now, Chris, you know that I, I modulate that workout many, many times depending on the season where I'll turn the three minutes into half marathon pace, the two minutes into 10K pace, and the one minute into 5K pace. But that's not a true, that's not a true VO2 max workout. That's more of a hybrid that I use depending on the time of year or the season or the athlete that I'm working with. So um, I hope that wasn't too much and I didn't go through it too quickly, but hopefully people got the basic gist of what we're talking about there. Yeah, I mean, it's... The, the general template is, is that it's workouts where you're running fast paces with generally longer or more complete recovery than the next category of workouts that we'll talk about where you're doing threshold work and sometimes you might have short recovery. And, and in the case of these kinds of VO2 max workouts, oftentimes you, Steve, will give people perhaps some flexibility in their recovery to say, hey, if you if you get in over your head and, and you don't necessarily want to, you know, take extended recovery lightly, so to speak, but but if you do get in over your head at any point or find yourself maybe that you went too fast on a certain interval, you do have the flexibility to give yourself a little bit more recovery on these types of workouts if needed in order to get back to your paces. Because the true benefit of these workouts comes in hitting those faster paces when you're trying to hit them and doing it as efficiently as you can and as relaxed and in control as you can, even when that monkey gets on your back at the end of the workout. Absolutely, Chris. You absolutely want to be sure that you're hitting the paces when you're doing VO2 work. It doesn't do you any good to not hit the paces when you're doing VO2 work because you're really trying to check off a physiological box there. And when you don't hit the paces because your recovery isn't optimal, then you're not really stressing that VO2 max system as much as you probably could. And so, yeah, a lot of times like in 800 meter workouts, I'll be like two to three minutes recovery, depending on what you need. And early on in those reps, nobody, nobody needs more than two minutes. But as they get near the end on those seventh and eighth and ninth reps, they're like, oh my Lord, I need all three minutes, you know, so they can hit the paces that they're trying to hit. Because VO2 max work is really about checking the physiological box off that's just so important. And those paces matter when you do it. Yeah. And usually when you fall off the pace, it also means you're getting sloppy with your running form. You're shoulders are coming up over your ears, your arms are flailing, your stride gets wonky. Some people stick their butt out and do various weird things with their lower body form as well. And when that happens, to continue to try to do the work 
as you fall apart from a form perspective, you start to risk injury. And if as those paces slip, you're also not actually getting the benefit of the workout any longer. So this is also oftentimes a type of workout where you or I as coaches will stop people <laughs> once, once they lose track of the pace or once they start getting ugly with their form because, because they've, at that point, they're risking more injury and they're also no longer getting the purpose of the workout. True. And you know, Chris, I, 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 you and I both could do this, but I guarantee you if we had, if we were standing um, on a track or at a workout location and we, could, we, we were blindfolded or we had our eyes closed, we could tell what kind of pace our athletes were doing based on their breathing. We would be able to tell if they were in threshold pace or if they were doing VO2 max work, or if they were doing 10K pace or 5K pace, we should be able to tell what they're doing based on their breathing. <laughs> and and I all very frequently I will make people adjust and they'll say, How how in the world do you know that I'm that I'm in this state? I'm like, I can just hear you breathing and you should not be breathing that hard. <laughs> You're at a percentage of of work level that isn't appropriate for what we're designed we designated this workout to be, and so I'll make them adjust. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 funny. It's funny you say that because honestly, when I'm watching and observing workouts, in addition to using my eyes to see what people look like, that's the other thing I'm listening for, both as they come around in intervals, but also when they're at the water stop and recovering, or when they when they've stopped for their recovery, listening to their breathing to see if they're at the right spot (laughs) in terms of their effort level. Because, you know, if they're barely able to take in oxygen or if it's if their breathing is too light, I mean, all of that tells you things that might have you intervene in some way during the workout. All right. So we're at almost an hour and 40 minutes, Steve. We've gone too long already. <laughs> we can pick up we can pick up other things on VO2 Max as we need to on the next episode as we go into other workout types. But what would be any final thoughts? on this category of workout before we shut it down for this part and uh, close out the episode? Um, Pace, not effort. So now I'll ask people to do, and what I mean by that is this is in all the other workouts we're getting ready to talk about from economy and then all the, and then we we go on to the the threshold or, or, and specific work. This is the one one kind of workout where what pace you hit is very, very important. Um, and there's a lot of flex, Chris, that we create in all programming that we write at Rogue. And I'm sure all coaches write in all their training cycles. And we like variability. We like athletes to have the ability to be in control. We like them to be able to go on efforts. But when it comes to VO2 max work, you want to be following the pace that is appropriate for you based on the workout in play. So if you're doing 5K pace, you really want to hit 5K pace. If you're doing 10K pace, you really want to hit 10K pace. This is the one workout type or the one workout category where the most important thing is to hit, knit, get the nail on the head for the pace that you're running and to let all the other pieces of the puzzle sort of fall away as less important. I can't tell you how many times, Chris, I'll ask people to do VO2 max work and they're so focused on the recovery or how much recovery they do or what they pace they run the recovery 
And I just have to scream at them and say, stop, stop, stop. All that matters is what you're doing at the specific pace for the interval that we're doing because we're trying to check that physiological box off. This is what's crucial when we're doing VO2 max pace, especially when we're talking about half marathoners and marathoners who are probably not running a 10K or a 5K race anytime soon. And so that race race specificity is not as important. So that's what I would say, Chris. What's most important here is pace in this system, in this category. And it's the only category, really, where pace is so crucial. Absolutely. And that's a good way to close this thing out. So there you go. That's our first of at least two parts (laughs) on quality workouts. We talked about economy and VO2 max building workouts. Hopefully you learned something with that and hopefully we didn't get too technical or crazy with some of our language and terminology. But if you do have questions on this episode, certainly send those over to us, chris at roguerunning.com and we will get to those on the future versions of this series. So there you go. That's episode 73 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.